Uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, um, especially for the passage that Evan read a few moments ago. I ask, Lord, that you would um, engrave it on our hearts as we contemplate um, your son's passion uh, over the next few weeks. I ask that we would be transformed as we consider his example, as we consider what he has accomplished through his suffering, um, and that you would give us grace uh, to follow in his steps and to go where he has led. We ask it in his name. Amen. I hope I'm not going to offend you guys too much um, today at the outset of the sermon. And I, I mean, when you put together a sermon, you try and put together a little hook to draw people in. And I'm, I'm afraid that this is going to draw you in too much because people are going to get too angry at what I'm about to say. Because I'm going to talk about Star Wars. And people have really strong opinions about Star Wars. Uh, some of you are going to be upset that I'm just talking about it because it's really just kind of a nerdy, weird thing to bring up. The rest of you are going to be upset because I'm going to take a position and you're probably going to disagree with me on this. But the reason why I bring this up is because a few weeks ago, I was, for the past few weeks, I've been in Germany with a bunch of other nerds where we've been studying paleography, which is the study of old handwriting and particularly from the 16th century, looking at scrawls and scribbles. And it takes a very nerdy group of people to be doing this for two weeks. Um, we had a, a lot of fun, but we also engaged in a lot of other extracurricular discussions. And uh, the people in the program tried to convince me to watch Andor, which is, I guess, streaming on Disney Plus these days, which is a TV series sequel to Rogue One. And so we were talking and we began talking about Rogue One, the Star Wars movie itself. And I told them I really didn't like Rogue One. And I made a lot of enemies when I said that. Now, I don't know how many of you have strong opinions about Star Wars and how many of you dislike this movie, but let me tell you why I dislike it. And I'm gonna tell you what I told them. I said, I do not like Rogue One as a movie. There were enjoyable parts. I liked some of the characters, although I didn't really think it had great character development, but that's beside the point. The reason why I said I, did, I, I didn't really like this movie was because the, all, none of the main characters had real agency. Now, this is, you know, kind of a weird thing to talk about if you haven't seen the movie, but I'm hoping my explanation is going to explain why I disliked it. And you can apply it to other films or other things too. But I said, look, the main characters in this movie, Rogue One, everything happens to them and they are always reacting to what is happening to them. There's never a moment in the, in the plot in which the characters really decide they're going to be the ones to stake out their own destinies in their own directions. They're going to be the ones to set the agenda. Things happen to them and they have to respond in an almost predictable way. Now, that doesn't mean that it's an entirely unenjoyable movie, but what it means is that as, as far as characters, they are never able to take charge of their story in a way that makes me particularly engaged with the movie. Now I say this, this is one of the highest grossing movies of all time. So plenty of people have disagreed with me and you're allowed to disagree with me about this. But why am I bringing all of this in? Because I think as we come to the gospel today, as we begin a new part of Matthew's gospel, something of a switch has flipped. Up until now, from the time that Jesus was being tempted in the gospel of Matthew, by Satan, right? He goes into the wilderness, Satan comes and he tempts him. Three questions, three answers. 
And Jesus comes out of the wilderness. From that moment on, Jesus, as a protagonist in the Gospel of Matthew, has been at the center of the action, and he has been active, setting the agenda of everything that's been happening in the Gospel. Something happens, it's not so much that Jesus is reacting to it, Jesus is making things happen, right? He shows up in a village, he starts teaching, he starts preaching, he starts healing, he starts doing miracles. Jesus is fundamentally in charge of everything that he is doing, and he is the one generating the plot around him. Even when his friend Lazarus dies, and I realize this is in the Gospel of John, but go with me here for a second. Even in the Gospel of John, when his friend Lazarus dies, Jesus is not primarily reactive to it. What does he do? He tells his disciples, let's wait a day or two, and then we're going to go to Bethany. Why? Because Jesus is taking control of the narrative. Rather than simply reacting to his friend being sick and almost to the point of death, and in fact his friend dies, he wants to make sure that God's mission and God's purposes in having Lazarus get sick in the first place are fulfilled. And he goes when he wants to. He doesn't go to mourn, although he does mourn, but he goes to bring his friend back from the dead. And he does so with the purpose of showing his people who he really is, so that they would believe. He even enters into the Garden of Gethsemane last week. And what does he do? He gets on his knees, and he recognizes that a cup has been put in front of him, and it's his decision, do I drink it or do I not? Now, at this point, he is suffering, to the point that Luke tells us he begins to sweat drops of blood. He is in that much agony, and yet... In terms of the choice being offered to him, he actively embraces and chooses the cup that the Father has for him. But today something switches. Jesus is bound. Like Isaac was bound by Abraham, Jesus, in our story today, in the narrative that we have, in the plot that's been laid out, Jesus suddenly becomes very passive. His hands are tied his lips are closed, his tongue is restrained. Things happen to Jesus, and Jesus is reacting. And I don't know if you can feel how strange that is for Jesus, how strange it is in the Gospel of Matthew, but it has struck many people throughout church history as a very strange thing. Because when we think about Jesus as God, Jesus as God the Son, the Son of God, Jesus the Word of God who was spoken in the beginning and all things came into being, Jesus who has set all of the stars in the sky in motion, who has hung the sun and the moon, the one who has dug the deeps, who has filled the seas, the one who is always active and never reactive, the one who is always active and never passive, the fact that he has come into this world and not only actively engaged with it, but who has become subject to passivity, to suffering, to passion. That has often struck us as very strange and almost unworthy of God himself. But what we believe as Christians is that the suffering of Jesus, the passivity of Jesus, this episode in Jesus's life when his own agency 
seems to be called into question. Where That is, that he is only reactive. He is like the characters in row one, for lack of a better example. He is at the whims of everyone else in his life. That this is, in fact, the key to our salvation. The idea, as we transition into this passage in Matthew, is that Jesus, even when he is undergoing passivity and passion and suffering, he is still the active agent of our salvation. Now, why am I saying this? Well, first of all, because I want to explain this passage to you. I want us to go through this passage in Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 68. We're going to go through parts of it. It's a long one, and in the amount of time that we have, I don't know how extensively we're going to be able to get into granular detail, but the big picture that I want us to come away with is that as Jesus succumbs to everyone else around him, he is still active. And we not only can find hope and strength and comfort and forgiveness and salvation in knowing what he suffered, what he endured, what happened to him on our behalf, but know too that as we follow in his steps, as his followers, as believers in his name and in everything that he has done for us, when we also find ourselves in moments where we feel like our agency has been taken away, when we feel like we have no options left to us, when we feel like there are no pathways for us to set our own agenda or our own goal, but that our, our life, our destiny, our choices have been worked out by forces greater than us, that in Christ we can find agency once again. We, in him, can find that we actively engage with him and with others around us regardless of how little agency we can feel like we have. So with that in mind, the question then becomes, well, what does agency look like for Jesus in this moment of betrayal and in this moment of judgment? So the first of my three points is that Jesus demonstrates his activity, his agency, his ability to still be the protagonist in the story because he is open to his own betrayal, right? We see this in the first few verses. And not only the first few verses, in this entire passage, because what we see, first of all, is that there are two betrayals happening, isn't there? The first betrayal is the obvious one, right? Judas walks up, and what is he doing? He is betraying Jesus into the hands of his enemies. He walks up, and they apparently couldn't pick Jesus out of a crowd. And he says, look, wait until I have kissed Jesus. And once you see me kiss him, once you see me show affection to him, you can know that this is the one that you, have, that you need to arrest. And so what does he do? He goes up to Jesus, he gives him a kiss, and he says, hail, Rabbi, greetings, hello, good to see you. And Jesus says, what are you doing, Judas? And then they arrest him. This is the first of the betrayals. But Judas is a kind of symbol, a microcosm of a larger betrayal that Jesus is about to undergo at the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the elders of the people, it says. Because Jesus is their king. 
Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the one who has come into the world to be their king, to be their leader. They owe him their allegiance. And what do they do instead? They give him a false trial. They put him on a, the kind of trial that, according to Jewish law, was illegal. And the leaders of his own people try him, reject him, condemn him, and send him off to die. There are two betrayals going on in this story. Now, what is Jesus' response to this? Jesus announces to his disciples very clearly what he intends to do. And the answer is he intends to do nothing. This is his decision. He accepts it. He goes along with it. He does this even though his disciples do the opposite. We have recorded for us here in Matthew, and Matthew very delicately does not tell you who it was. The other gospel writers are not so delicate. They tell you it was Peter. Peter took a sword, and what did he do? He chopped off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. Now, those of you who know anything about combat, and I don't know much, but I do know this, you either have to be very skilled to chop off somebody's ear, because it's a very small target, or what? He was going for his head, right? He was trying to chop off his head. He missed, and he grazed him, and he got his ear instead. Peter takes out, uses lethal force to try and defend Jesus, and Jesus stops him, and he says, Peter, Obviously, we know it's Peter. Matthew doesn't record it. But he says, Peter, you need to stop it. This is not what I have come for. Don't you realize that if I needed to, I could call out to my father and call down 12 legions of angels, and he, they would come and they would deliver me? He says, but what? The scripture needs to be fulfilled. And everything that the prophets have said is going to happen needs to happen. I have a mission, and my mission involves the people who are betraying me. You see, Jesus as the protagonist in the story, is open to his betrayal. Why? Because he cares for the people who are betraying him. His disciples at this point scatter and they leave him, right? It's not a betrayal per se, but it is an abandonment. It is a denial. G Peter himself is going to do what? He is going to deny Jesus three times before the cock crows. Jesus understands that this betrayal is bigger than Judas. It is all of his people, and I would even say, including us. When Jesus was opening himself up to his betrayal, up to his binding, up to being handed over into the hands of sinful men, we are not just talking about the Jewish people of the first century. We are talking about all of us. Jesus was handed into our hands, and we were the ones who killed him. And if for no other reason, because it is our sins who nailed him to the cross, and for whose sins he suffered. This is one of the great things about the way in which we tend to read the Passion on Palm Sunday and Good Friday in the Anglican tradition over the last 40 or 50 years. Because when we come to these parts where the people are crying out, crucify him, crucify him, those are often parts that we all read all together. We are the cause of his suffering. And what Jesus does is he takes on the compassion of his father for the traitors. 
Jesus is willing to give his life for traitors. Jesus is willing to lay down his life for those who hate him, for those who have handed him over to suffering and to death. We are those for whom he has died, which means not only can you trust, you can trust the words of Jesus when he says that I love you and I'm willing to lay down my life for you. I am willing to give you forgiveness and peace and pardon, to put away any sword of violence against you and instead to embrace you with all of the peace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. I'm willing to welcome you into my eternal and divine family. Why? Because my love for you is greater than any betrayal that you could possibly have given me. No matter what sin it is that you think would get in the way between you and God, Jesus has come to say, I hear and the evidence that God's love is greater than that, that my blood is more powerful than that, that my passivity, that my suffering my lack of agency is in fact my choice why so that through suffering and through death through what happens to me i can bring you peace with god and what this also means is that our lives are to be characterized by the same openness to people who have betrayed us and who might betray us when Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about anything, you remember this from the, from the, the Sermon on the Mount that we, we would have studied, what, like a year ago? We've been going through Matthew for a while. But Jesus says, don't worry about anything. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. You need to be as careless as the birds of the air or the flowers of the field. Stop worrying about your life. There are things more important even than birds and flowers, and your heavenly Father knows how to take care of you. You say, well, that's great when it comes to things like food or clothing, but when it comes to trusting people, I have a hard time with that. I have a hard time trusting God when it means opening my life up to people who could rob me, who could steal, who could betray my trust, share my secrets, stab me in the back when you least expect it. And let me tell you, pastor, I have been wounded by people. I have been let down by people. And I will say, I absolutely know what you're talking about because people have let me down. People have wounded me. People have hurt me. People have cheated on me. Just to clarify really quickly, it's not my wife. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> but people have done me wrong. And it is very hard to let go of those things. It's hard to let go of that for them. And it's hard to look to the future when you're running into new people and meeting new people to be able to say, I'm going to open my life, I'm going to open my home, I am going to open my family to people that could hurt us. And yet, Jesus says, don't worry about anything. Trust your Heavenly Father. Be willing to trust other people who could hurt you. Because in the end, your openness to being betrayed by people that you would consider a friend means that you are following in the footsteps of Jesus who was willing to be betrayed into the hands of sinners because he loved them, because he was willing to do anything to get them back. So that's the first thing. Jesus demonstrates his agency, 
his activity as a protagonist in this story, even through his passivity, by being open to betrayal. The second thing that Jesus does to demonstrate his agency is his openness to the truth. Now, he's already talked about how the scripture needs to be fulfilled, how the scriptures that were recorded from the prophets detailed already in advance what was going to happen, which means that his attitude about betrayal, which means that his attitude about his arrest, that means his embrace of what was coming, he had to do it for the sake of the truth of scripture. We see this also in terms of his adherence to scripture in his trial before the Sanhedrin, before the council of the chief priests and the elders of the people that met there at night. Because in the end, what happens? Jesus cites the prophet Daniel and he says, you will see the son of man seated on the throne at the right hand of the father coming with the clouds of heaven. He invokes not only the prophecies of his suffering at his arrest, but he evokes the prophecies of his exaltation, of his glory, of his second coming when he is sitting there before the Sanhedrin. But it's not just the truth of scripture, because truth, while it is true and it is real, coming to the truth is a process. One of the most interesting things of what happens in the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin is what? What does he say? For 99% of it, he says, nothing. Jesus remains silent because he wants the testimony of his fellow human beings to be heard and to make themselves known. Now, this testimony was equivocal. This testimony contradicted itself. The reason why they stayed up so late that night was because they couldn't even get their witnesses to agree. And yet Jesus stayed silent, not so that he could be blasphemed, not so that he could be accused, not so that he could be cursed, not so that they could lie about him, but so that the truth could come out. Because truth, in order for it to come out, has to come about through the right process. So he remains silent, at once recognizing the legitimacy of human testimony about him, a legitimacy that he never grants the demons. I don't know if you've noticed this in the Gospels, but every time the demons try to tell people that he is the Son of God, he is the Christ, what does Jesus tell them to do? Shut up, right? He says, don't speak. You're not allowed to speak because he will not accept demonic testimony, but he wants the testimony of human beings to demonstrate the truth of who he is and what he's about to do. The closest that they get is that they do seem to agree that he said something about him tearing down the temple and rebuilding it in three days, which we know, first of all, he said something very similar to that. John tells us that in John chapter two. But also, we know that he's talking about his body. The testimony that bubbles to the surface is the testimony about what he is about to do, that that body of his, that temple of his body is going to be torn down. But on the third day, he would rise from the dead. So finally, in exasperation, what happens? He speaks. He speaks because he's commanded to by the leaders of the people, by the chief priest himself. He says, tell us, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And his answer was, in that sort of indirect ancient Near Eastern way of speaking, he says what? You say so, which in modern very direct North American culture would be, absolutely I am. And here, as elsewhere, what does he do? He appeals to his relationship to his father. He 
He calls God his father. He is his son. And he says, I am the son of God who is coming into the world. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. He bears faithful witness to the truth. There are times that he stays silent, and there are times that he needs to speak. I just want to take a little tiny detour and just say that I wish we as Christians had the wisdom of Jesus in this regard, because too many times we are quick to speak what we think needs to be said. And then when the time comes for us to say what really needs to be said, we stay silent. Jesus does the opposite. But in every respect, Jesus uses his agency to allow the truth to come through, to allow, the, to allow the truth, whether through his silence and through the words of other people, or whether what he says to the crowds, what he says to the soldiers, what he says to Judas, what he says before the Sanhedrin, when he gives his faithful witness, what is he saying? I am my father's son. I am who he says I am. And I bear witness to who he says that I will be. And I will come with the clouds, and I will establish his kingdom. He makes known that he has to suffer because he speaks this kind of truth. It is when he speaks this truth that the high priest arises and he says, you see, we have heard it with our own ears. We need no other witnesses. He has said what he ought not to say. And by speaking the truth, you could say, well, it just happens to Jesus that they arrest him and they torture him and they send him off to Pontius Pilate to die. But you see in the moment, Jesus takes his own agency and he does so by speaking the truth. And let me add that as those who are called to follow in his footsteps, we demonstrate our agency as his followers and as believers in Jesus Christ, regardless of what is happening to us, regardless of where we are, by standing for the truth. First and foremost, for the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and how we can be made right with God because of his death and resurrection. So, Jesus' agency is demonstrated first by his openness to betrayal, secondly, by his openness to the truth, and finally, by his openness to death. Now, this may seem a little strange. Death, after all, is the absolute end of agency, isn't it? I mean, pretty much the definition. There are a lot of things that you can say about a dead body, but the primary thing is that the, a dead body doesn't do anything. My sons are getting just old enough that they're starting to kind of piece together what death is. We just had a conversation this morning about um, someone in our family, what would happen if they died? And they say, well, but then what would they do? And I said, well, they didn't do anything. What do you mean? So, well, death means when you don't do anything. It means you can't do anything. You can't make decisions. You can't eat breakfast. You can't go to the store. Death is that state in which we entirely lose our agency. This is what we see, for instance, when we read the Psalms. As the Psalmists talk about, if I go into Sheol, who is going to worship God? Who is going to do what he wants us to do on the earth? How am I going to relate to God and follow him and worship him and serve him if I am lying in the grave and in death? Death is that most defenseless, that most passive, 
that most suffering of states. And what happens here as Jesus is condemned by the Sanhedrin? Death is the outcome. And death is the choice that Jesus was given in the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, which, like the Garden of Eden, presented a choice, life or death. Adam and Eve chose death, very consciously. Somehow, in his own way, Jesus also chooses death. But in choosing death, in making it his decision, in making it his goal, in making it what he is bending the arc of his narrative towards, Jesus is also somehow reasserting his own agency over the death that he will be confronted with. Now, death is the verdict that is rendered. It is given, it is the sentence given by the people, and they give him a foretaste by beating him, by mocking him, by scourging him, even there in the middle of the night before he is sent off to Pilate. But in this willing embrace of death, and his willing to step out in truth, to embrace his betrayers, and to say, no, regardless of regardless of the outcome, regardless of the pain, regardless of the stress, regardless of the agony, I am going to choose this path. A passion, a suffering, a happening too, becomes a moment in which Jesus re-narrates his life. Peter eventually will put it in a sermon in Acts chapter 4. The only way for the author of life could die was for him to choose this path from the very beginning. He who is the life himself, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If the life itself could die, it could only be because he chose to die. He chose it so that we could be saved. The question perhaps for us to ask is, are we willing to be united to Christ in his death? Just as he chose death for us, the question is, are we willing to choose death for him? Now, in asking that question, I have to make sure I clarify. Um, and I do mean it very literally, but there are steps, right? One of the first questions that we have to ask when it comes to choosing death for the one who has chosen it for us is, are we willing to put to death those parts of our lives which deserve death? Those parts of our lives which are opposed to God, which are opposed to his law, which are opposed to his rule and his kingdom over us. Are we willing to examine our lives and see the sin in our lives and say, this needs to be put to death? It is time for me to come back to the waters of my baptism, to identify this aspect of my life, and to put it below those waters and hold it until the bubbles stop coming up. Am I willing to drown these parts of my life so that I can follow Christ? He made more like him. This is the New Testament's theology of baptism. And in baptism, the old Adam in us is put to death so that the new Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, can come to life within us so that Christ may live in us, no longer us, so that we can live in him. The second related question would be, are we willing to put to death our, our dreams and our desires for our own life? Are we willing to step out in faith and say, God may have a new plan for my life, a new narrative, a new arc in which in surrendering, surrendering agency over my life to him, 
putting him in charge of my life, suddenly I find that I have a renewed agency in my life as well. One of the funny things is, is that in order to receive your life, you have to give it up. You have to be willing to go to God and say, I want you to take control of my life. And once you give it over to God and say, I want you to own my life. I want you to direct it. I want you to control it. I, whatever it is that you have for me, I want you to make sure it happens. I'm willing to say, I don't know what I want from it, for myself, but whatever it is that you want, I want to embrace it. When we do that, when we go to the Lord and we say, here is my life, take it and use it as a living sacrifice that is put to death and yet somehow brought back to life, God gives it back to us. The way for you to have full agency in your life is to surrender that agency to God. And when we do that, and this lastly, let me say, this may lead to the point of death. And this may seem hyperbolic. We're in North America right now. We are not at risk, usually, of suffering to the point of death for the sake of Jesus Christ. But there are many believers around the world that know that in confessing Jesus Christ and bearing faithful witness to him in giving their life over to God so that he can run their lives and set their trajectory and agenda, that what that does is it brings them afoul of the powers that be in this world. And that can mean suffering. That can mean persecution, mockery, torture, even to the point of death. And as those of you who are involved in the missions committee, and I'm looking around, I see a few of those people, you can tell more statistics than I can. The fact that this is the period in church history where there are more martyrs giving their lives for Christ at this moment than at any other time in the history of the church since Jesus rose from the dead. More people are giving their lives in testimony. Now you may say, that's not going to be me. It might not, but it might. And the question that we have to ask is, are you willing to follow Jesus to bear witness to the point of death? In conclusion, let me wrap this up and just say, there are so many things that we can take away from this passion narrative. We're going to be spending a few weeks just based on my calculations, at least, a few weeks going through the Passion narrative here at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. There is a lot to take away. There's a lot to take away about what it means to suffer, what it means, what Jesus has done for us, and to appreciate and absorb everything that he has done. But even in his moments of greatest defeat, I want us to see in him a victor. I want us to see someone who is, even in his darkest and weakest moments, still the protagonist of his story, the protagonist of our story, the one who has come into our story to make us his. And I want us then to see in our lives a reinterpretation, to recognize that in our limitations, in our frustrations, in those moments when we seem most hollow, when we seem like we have the fewest choices, the most rundown, that these are the opportunities for us to go to Christ and in Him 
define what we need to say, yes, I have life, I have agency, I have a purpose, I have a direction. I pray that we find that for each of us and that we help others to do so as well. Amen.